Hill and welcome to Talking Law, the podcast where you can hear barristers, judges, solicitors, managing partners and more talk about their lives and careers in law. I'm Sally Penny. I'm a barrister at law at Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester. I'm the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers and the founder of Women in the Law UK. This episode is supported by Interlaw Forum. Founded in 2008, the organisation seeks to promote meritocracy and inclusion for all diverse and socially disadvantaged groups in the legal sector. Find out more at interlawdiversityforum.org. Today I'm talking law with Daniel Winterfeld, MBE, QC. Daniel is a senior corporate and securities lawyer with over 22 years experience and he is currently the managing director and the general counsel for EMEA and Asia at Jefferies along with a whole host of other responsibilities. Daniel is an American now living in England and I began by asking him why he chose to move to the UK to pursue his career in law. Yeah so I was born in the States. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, My family is Jewish. Three of my four grandparents had left uh, Europe prior to uh, World War II and the Holocaust, um, and they all found their way to the Midwest. Um, I was born there. I went to university um, at Washington University in St. Louis, and had thought about doing a medicine originally, and then sort of realized after spending my junior year abroad in Spain that I was spending too much time in books and, and the medical route before you're a doctor so let's just say the people who I went to undergraduate with and did pre-med in America were, were doctors, full-fledged doctors, when I became a partner at a law firm. So it's, wow. a much long, it's a much longer path. And I realized that I wanted to be able to travel and work with people and do more international work. So I decided to do law. I applied to law schools and got into Fordham Law School in New York City at Lincoln Center. So I went to school there from 95 to 98. After my graduation, I worked for two years in New York on Wall Street and did corporate work and then came over to London in 2000 to work with Wal Gottschall. Um, and I was there for almost five years. Um, and I did a mixture of, of, of corporate, including M&A, um, as well as capital markets. And they trained me on doing capital markets work. Wow, because actually your honour isn't just for diversity. You know, it's like me, people forget that we've got full-time jobs. It's actually for um, services to the capital markets and uh, all the work you've done You've done there, which is amazing, Daniel, really. So when you came to England, what was it like, you know, from an American point of view? And then also I want to talk a little bit, very briefly, about your experiences, if you like, as a international lawyer in London? Well, you know, as an openly gay man, coming to London in 2000 was challenging. It was very, very different from New York. Um, In New York in the 90s, there were domestic partner benefits at New York law firms. People were openly gay. At Weill in New York, the head of the banking group uh, was openly gay. Um, There were a lot more women partners. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there there are different demographic makeups when it comes to things like... like, um, race, ethnicity in the U.S. So those numbers are higher. So you would have seen more representation earlier on, but it still was very, very different. I felt like I was coming um, to some place that was quite closed. I'd be in offices of 300, 400 people and there'd be one other out person or two out people. Um, So things were really different in London 20 years ago than they are now. So I found it challenging. I love the work. 
I found clients very appreciative. If you stayed up overnight, you got a thank you note from clients. Uh, in New York, people were like, <laughs> of course you stayed up all night. You're my lawyer. Um, so I felt like things here were, you know, it was hard and you worked hard, but people were more appreciative. And, you know, I, I really have grown to love London. And London has really developed and evolved over the past 20 years when it comes to inclusion. And obviously from a culture cultural perspective and architecture and arts, London is an amazing place to be. Um, and I've grown to really love the theater here. I think the finest actors in the world are trained here. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I feel really blessed to be here and what a beautiful city to just walk around and, and be part of. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, Daniel, I didn't ask you about, you know, your sexuality, but you're quite open about it. And I don't want to focus on that. But I wonder, did that play a part in you setting up the Interlaw Forum? And perhaps you can tell us what it is, because it's not just about the LGBTQ community, is it? It's inter um, uh, for a reason. Can you tell us what it is? why you set it up and how it came about? Because it's amazing what Interlaw has been doing. Yeah, so, I mean, definitely 100% Interlaw started because I was gay. As someone who, at, um, who had worked in London for eight years when I started it in February 2008. So we're actually, it's our 14th anniversary this month. Wow. Which is exciting. Um, but we started as an LGBT um, plus network. Um, we, at that point in time, there were only three law firms with LGBT networks in all of London. And those same three law firms were the only three law firms that monitored sexual orientation. So LGBT was nowhere on the map. And it's very interesting because now people say, no one wants to talk about race, but let me tell you something. Back then, people were running to talk about race and gender if they did not have to talk about gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. They really, really? Were words, they really were words that people thought did not belong in the workplace. People would not say the word gay, they would not talk about it. And part of that is generational, um, about people 15 up and 50 down in the UK yeah. have a different view of sexual orientation. And there's this view that it's, it's something that's private that one doesn't speak about. And that was more prevalent, especially among you know management and people who made decisions at law firms. So. Definitely when I became a partner in 2008, having felt isolated, looking up and having no role models. Also in my private life, I knew almost no LGBT professionals. So I wanted to come out and think, what can we do to change things? What can we do to improve things for the legal sector? And I started going to Stonewall, had a workplace champions program where there were quarterly meetings. And in those quarterly meetings, they also talked about their work equality index, which measures LGBT plus inclusion in the workplace and the legal sector ranked second from the bottom and at the time had no employers in the top 100 employers. Oh, so I knew no. this was a sector-wide problem. It was a sector-wide issue. And I've been running the Forum for U.S. Securities Lawyers in London, which brought together lawyers, bankers, the London Stock Exchange, settlement systems, et cetera, to talk about capital markets issues and how U.S. securities impacts the London capital markets. And I thought, well, if I can do it for capital markets, I can do it for diversity. So um, there was an interbank and I researched interbank and what worked and what didn't work about interbank and then launched the Interlaw Diversity Forum, originally called for LGBT networks. Um, and then over time, we started doing research. We started going deeper and being intersectional about our work. Because, yeah. and, you know, we, and we did some research early on as well with the Law Society. I also went around and talked to employers. So I talked to 
law firms and talk about the fact that they should be launching networks, talk about the fact that they should be monitoring sexual orientation. Um, so it was really kind of a mixture of having monthly meetings to support and bring people together from the grassroots level, working with and helping launch networks and supporting employee resource groups, and then also working with employers and working at that level. Wow. And 14 years is a long time. You know, many of us who've set up networks to try and bring about change and encourage change and so on and so forth. It's not easy work, is it? How have you managed to be resilient and uh, be progressive at the same time? Well, you know, I think that, I mean, the one thing about interlaw is that, you know, I am a a benevolent dictator of interlaw. So one thing I've done (laughs) is I run as a not-for-profit. So I, I, own interlaw. I do not get, you know, paid for my work. So I run it as a not-for-profit, but I don't have a complex corporate governance structure that I would have with a charity because honestly, I don't, I wouldn't have the time for that. I think that would have killed interlaw. Um, having to manage a, a board and, and answer to people, I don't have time for that. So one thing that's great about it is I'm able to ramp up and ramp down depending on how busy I am in my day job. I decide the deadlines. I decide when things are delivered. Um, and I have an amazing you know, raft of people over time who, you know, volunteer and support. And now that we have, you know, more of a budget, we have some consultants who are paid and one full-time employee to help support the work we do. But I, you know, I'm able to align my passions with that work. So I've allowed Interlaw to grow and evolve. So I feel like it's always fresh. It's always challenging me. And I feel like we follow where the profession needs support. Um, So we started LGBT plus at that time, I think it was one of the most silenced, most difficult groups to support and address. We were able to unlock real significant change within five to six years within the legal sector and be part of a huge shift and a transformation. Um, we, we did our research as well. So inside of our research, we started doing LGBT plus research because the Law Society was doing research on um, women and ethnic minority lawyers. And we came along and said, can we do an LGBT plus study? And they said, only if you help us co-author it, we don't have the resources. So we came along and co-authored that report. Those reports were published in 2010 and they're called the Barriers Reports. They're still on the Law Society's website. And then in 2011, we did research with the Judicial Appointments Commission. Again, they were doing research on gender and race and ethnicity and we approached them and said can we do lgbt plus and they said great we'll give you the questions you can do your own report um but we're never going to be changing our monitoring policy on lgbt plus within your lifetime and i thought well that sounds like a challenge <laughs> so that, <laughs> that research was published in 2011 and actually um they changed leadership at the jac And the chairman wrote the intro to our report. It was launched at the Law Society. And that day they put out a press release from the JAC saying from that day forward, they would start monitoring sexual orientation. We also had the privilege of reporting into Baroness Neuberger's committee on diversity in the the judiciary. And we were able to give her the advanced results of our research to feed into her report. Um, So we were actually quoted by her report, I think 12 to 14 times interlaw in our research was quoted and LGBT was mentioned, which was a huge milestone because up till that point, there were no mentions of LGBT on the JAC's website. None of the previous commissions, um, committees on judicial diversity ever mentioned LGBT. So Mm -hmm. we were invisible. So for the first time, thanks to Baroness Neuberger, 
Um, and thanks to the new chairman of the JAC, we became visible and we also became a characteristic that was monitored um, by the JAC. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing, really, isn't it? And research is hard, you know. We've done some research about why women were leaving the profession. It, it's quite hard and it's quite difficult to get people to open up and then, then assessing the impact of the research. So I'm really thrilled to see. I saw that those reports were still up uh, and they're on the website in my research for this interview. But I'm also interested in what you've been doing recently, which is the Bottle Diversity Survey, which is much more recent. Can you tell me a bit more? about that yeah absolutely so the um the uk model diversity survey came about because the american bar association is now in its fifth year of running their version of the model diversity survey we within interlaw we did a series of programs for in-house counsel in our apollo leadership institute which brings together um general counsel and senior in-house lawyers to talk about diversity inclusion and culture And we did a series on how to manage panel firms for better outcomes in diversity and inclusion. And we invited Gretchen Bellamy from the ABA, as well as Alan Bryant from Walmart, um, who famously ran their panel, but also was very involved at the ABA working with Gretchen in launching the Model Diversity Survey. So the Model Diversity Survey is set up so that clients sign up as signatories, and then the survey is sent out once a year to law firms who fill it out, enter their data in a system. And once that data is entered in the system, Microsoft created a dashboard that generates reports for clients. So this way, in-house teams own the data because often data sits with in-house teams with the procurement team. It's owned by legal. They're able to generate reports. They're able to compare panel firms to each other and also track changes over time. So it's a complete revolution in data and transparency. And the newest version of the system is intersectional. um, And it goes much deeper and wider than what the SRA, the simple stats the SRA requires to be reported and placed on people's websites. So we, um, we decided, well, why don't we do this in the UK? My concern is over the past, you know, five years, as people become more active around diversity and inclusion, sometimes people have lost their way. And many of their activities are events, or sponsoring awards or sponsoring, you know, lists, but these things aren't really changing our profession, right? You can have as many International Women's Day's breakfasts as you want, but in 2012, women were 12% equity partners. And in 2019, women only moved to 14%. So you think of all the activity going around women, we are seeing glacial progress at senior levels to moving women um, in law firms to the highest levels of the career. So we have, a, and we still have that major drop off at sort of six to eight years qualified yeah. out, of, out of law firms and sometimes out of the profession. So mm-hmm. we really, and we even have challenges in-house as well. So it's not just a law firm thing. It is a profession issue. And it's obviously an issue for barristers and judges as well. So we have a lot of work to do within the profession to advance women. So you look at those stats and you think, if people were looking at the percentage of equity partners at law firms, would clients have allowed between 2011 and 2019 a 2% change? Which even more depressingly, my research partner, Dr. Lisa Webley, told me is actually within the margin of error. So it's possible that in eight years there was zero shift and change. And I just think if people looked at those numbers and said, we'd like to see 1% a year or 2% a year, you would have seen eight to 16% shift instead of two. 
So I believe that the transparency of the numbers is everything. And also getting in an intersectional way, because we know from our research as well, how much intersectionality can have an impact on people's challenges they face, as well as how much money they make. Um, yes. We see huge differences in our research from that perspective. And also looking deeper at the culture. So looking at things like attrition rates, promotion rates, and really getting down to the nitty gritty of, of what firms are doing. So we license and are exclusively working with the ABA to launch the UK Model Diversity Survey. We have over 30 client signatories signed up, including huge names like um, Google, Microsoft, Barclays, HSBC, my, my, my shop, Jeffries, amazing dream list of clients. Yeah. Uh, the Crown Estate. And then we have nominated, they've nominated over 120 law firms, 30 are onboarded, 20 are in the process of onboarding, and we're working to get more of those into the program. And I think that this will be a shift and a change because people will realize they have to refocus their diversity and inclusion activities on things that actually impact the recruitment, retention, and promotion of diverse talent. And I do think we're a little bit lost in that space. Yeah. Do you think actually the drive, you know, and the stats are even worse um, when we talk about race and when we talk about judiciary, because there's so many very good people, the JSE has been doing so much work. It's somewhat depressing when you see the data on paper and there is improvement. Do you think some of these issues need to be business driven? You know, I think Coca-Cola has said, you know, lawyers they are on the panel, for example, for their work have to have a diverse background. Um, you know, there's a shift. Do you think business needs to shift it or do you think we need to be thinking about quotas? when we think about impact? Because when you say people have lost their way a bit, I get exactly what you mean. You know, you can put on glossy shows, can't you, and glossy events, and then you look at, you know, the number of cases being brought in tribunals, for example, for sex discrimination or race and whatever, or these, and it's the same firms who are saying all this stuff, and it doesn't stack up. So do you think there's some of the shift? Because the dream list of clients, you know, do you think it has to come from people like Google and you know, all these wonderful HSBC, you know, does it have to be business driven rather than always being firm um, driven or chambers? Well, I mean, think about chambers and law firms. One of the problems you have is they don't have developed corporate governance structures. They don't have outside accountability to shareholders. They don't have transparency in data and reporting. So in the absence of that, you can't rely on them to do anything. And they're not highly regulated, right? If you look at a bank, for example, we have regular meetings with the FCA at Jefferies. We are, you know, working and collaborating with them on lots of projects, both, um, you know, some required by law, others voluntary. There is a huge active dynamic. When it comes to this space, you know, the regulators work in a completely different way in the legal space. They, you know, the it's just a different approach. So I think yeah. that in the absence of that and in the absence of corporate governance, think about corporate governance. I'm a capital markets lawyer. If a company is going to IPO, you know, we, we advise them on what corporate governance requirements are in the listing rules, what best practices people should be looking at having independent non-executive directors. Most yeah. law firms don't have that. Um, chambers don't have that. So where's the accountability and where is the expertise and experience from outside the profession. So to me, it's really, really important that we refocus and we reshift people. And I do think that clients have to do it. I think that power and that change has to come from clients. Yes. I think that we should also be long-term looking at the power of regulators and looking at what's done. I think the SRA should be demanding more of law firms. There should be more transparency, more accountability. 
Um, another problem, I think, is looking at things like systems and procedures. So, um, you know, in a public company, you are testing your systems and procedures. You have internal audit. Law firms don't have internal audit programs, or if they do, they're extremely basic. But why aren't people testing, for example, their bullying, harassment, and discrimination policies to make sure that they're fit for purpose and make sure their systems and procedures work? So if it does, if manager does something wrong, is HR challenging that or is HR rubber stamping it? Because they think their job is to approve whatever partners do. There's a lot of work that can be done in the corporate governance realm. And I think some of that will have to be mandated by the regulator and by law. And I'm not against things like quotas, but I think that we need to um, use everything else within our tools now. And I think with this government, that would be a challenging thing to get through, but maybe one day. I do also believe that, you know, clients sometimes make the mistake of overly focusing on who does their work. Yeah. So I was talking to a senior black lawyer at a major company who said that all her lawyers are white. None of her lawyers are diverse who work for her at her firms. I said, that's because the law firms take all the diverse lawyers and put them on the client cases for the clients <laughs> who ask for diverse lawyers and everybody else is white. So I think the model diversity survey is important because it focuses on the entire body at the law firm of all the lawyers. And I think if you had to pick and choose what you were going to look at, you should be more interested in the overall makeup of the organization rather than just who works for you. It's a bit too navel gazing. And a lot of major companies have been doing that for a decade now in the US and we're not seeing progress. It's not driving change. Yeah, yeah, such an important point. I ought to say, though, at the bar, we are trying our best, and the uh, bar standards board are regulating us. So I take your points, but we are trying our best for a very traditional and uh, aged population. I suppose across the pond in America, they seem to be ahead with these things. You know, the idea that you would have non execs at a law firm sounds quite interesting, doesn't it? Or a chambers, even, um, to bring different eyes. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting, interesting point. Daniel, I'd like to move on a bit and ask you about um, well-being. I know you've got dogs and I know you love Madonna and uh, we're in a profession with long hours, aren't we? And for me, I think a load of boxes just arrived actually for a, a case uh, this week, late returns, you know, from solicitor. Um, and we're not great at well-being. I know we're doing a lot in, bar in the bar well-being is trying to do a lot. What do you do for your well-being? I jealously guard my sleep. I used to not do that. I used to burn the candle at both ends all the time. Yeah. I really, really do make an effort to get seven to eight hours of sleep a night because without it, you know, I don't function as well. So I do that. I try and eat healthy, at least for lunch. <laughs> so I have, a very, I have the same lunch every day. It's very healthy. I go to Joe and the Juice and get a green juice and a flatbread sandwich with uh, chicken, avocado, and cucumber. My lunch is 500 calories. I do intermittent fasting, so I don't have breakfast. Um, so uh, I think, you know, watching your diet, and I try and exercise at least two to three times a week, um, and I try and walk 10,000 steps every day. So wow. when I get a chance, if I'm in the city, I walk home from the city, um, I walk as much as I can. So um, it's really, really important to take care of your health and well-being. And when I was younger, I definitely sacrificed my well-being you know, lots of rich takeaways, lots of sitting at my desk all day long and not moving um, and realize that you're doing yourself a disservice, but you're actually doing your clients a disservice because you're not at your best if you're not uh, well-fueled and exercised. Um, it, you know, you are doing your clients a favor by taking that break. You will come back to your work more refreshed, more focused, 
and much more productive. And I think that those long hours cultures in law firms are driven by that billable hour. Um, so I think it's important that we check in with ourselves and we really take care of ourselves. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, people, um, I think people, especially of kind of our generation, you know, we're always helping everyone else first and we don't take care of ourselves. And that's really, really important. Yeah, it's really good, really good point you make there, actually. Daniel, tell me, are you a reader? And if you're a reader um, uh, of books, I mean, or perhaps you listen to it on audio, um, what's your favourite book? And more importantly, uh, perhaps, um, do you have a favourite fictional lawyer? And if you don't have a favourite fictional lawyer, if there was going to be a film about your life, who would play you? Okay, well, okay. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I have a lot of favourite books. I have a bookshelf I'm looking at across the room. I can um, see it. It's very nice. <laughs> I have to say two books among my favorites. One, because it's an incredible work of literature, but it also means a lot to me. I have a, um, a first edition of Beloved signed by Toni Morrison. She came to my university um, and spoke, and I was able to go to a book signing and meet her. Um, wow. She's one of my favorite authors. She's from Ohio, from very close to where I grew up. And I have a real connection to her as an author. And I think when I was younger, as someone who was, who I knew I was gay, I wasn't openly gay, but I knew I was gay. And I felt very, I would grow up in a very conservative place. And I felt like I couldn't be out about who I was. There, there wasn't gay literature or role models or anything. And so I think that I often identified with Black women and Toni Morrison's books were uh, very important to me um, growing up. Um, as well as The Color Purple by Alice Walker, which is also, you know, LGBT as well. So those are two really important books to me. And the other book that I absolutely love, and they just came out with a new movie, um, is Dune by Frank Herbert. Yeah. I mean, it is is a work of literature. It is, even though it's science fiction and people think science fiction is not literature, Dune is literature. It is one of the most beautifully written books. And, you know, there's a whole series of five that he wrote. Um, but the first one is absolutely phenomenal and a must read. Amazing. amazing. I've got a lot more. I've got a lot more. <laughs> Sitting and waiting for me to read is a book called The Choice by Edith Iger. And she is a psychologist and a Holocaust survivor. And the book is called The Choice because essentially you can survive the Holocaust and turn into a bitter person, or you can choose to celebrate life and support other people. And that's a choice that we make every day. Um, wow. really looking forward to reading that. It's an, um, um, a really inspiring book. Yeah, I've written that down, actually, because uh, we've got a book club, so we're always looking for good books, although I think I'll probably cry through that book. The choice sounds great. Now, oh, Daniel, we don't need to hear all your books on there. I think you no, might... that's it. That's it. I'm done. I'm done with my <laughs> book list. And I, was thinking, and I was thinking that um, I don't know that I have... Do I have a favourite fictional lawyer in the, in the Marvel TV series of Jessica Jones? Oh, yeah. There's, there's a lawyer that's played by um, the actress from The Matrix. Oh. And I'm picturing her, and I can't remember her name. Uh, oh. Her name is Carrie Ann Moss. Oh. And she's phenomenal. She's, um, yeah, Carrie Ann Moss, and she's gorgeous and um, powerful. Um, she happens to be lesbi- a lesbian as well. Um, she's just a very interesting character because she's very complex. She's very smart. She's not necessarily good or evil. Very complex character, very complex portrayal. 
um, and actually quite realistic, I think, <laughs> of what our <laughs> profession looks like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but she was a fascinating character, and she appeared in a few of those series. Ah, I've written her down because I'd quite like to see. I like her, Anne Moss. Daniel, tell me, I want to talk about careers advice for people coming behind. And I've often said this publicly on podcasts I've been interviewed on, that I'm very concerned about opportunities given COVID um, for young people from all backgrounds or mature people from all backgrounds. And your career is especially interesting, which I've already alluded to, um, not least because you're now in-house counsel, which is fantastic doing interesting work, having been in private um, practice, but also, um, you know, you're a professor at uh, the Hult International Business School, teaching business law and ethics, uh, equity and inclusion and so on. So I wondered what advice would you, you know, perhaps a tips, three tips for somebody starting their career now? Um, what, what careers advice would you give them? I think, first of all, you should be open to opportunities. One thing I find really interesting is young people that I speak to often have these very, very detailed ideas about what their career should look like. Yes. Um, we, do, we did our um, virtual internship during COVID. We did 25 classes, virtual classes over five days. Um, and one of the biggest things I found I was deprogramming was this idea that if you didn't get a magic circle training contract, you were failing. Yeah. So I think people need to be open to many different paths to the profession. You can be a barrister, um, you can be a solicitor. There's many different paths to get to qualification. There's now the SQE, yeah. or in-house training contracts. I think people need to be much more open to opportunities and open to things as they come your way. Don't be so rigid. I met a very junior law student who said, I wanna be a derivatives lawyer. I'm like, <laughs> I, and I'm like, I don't think you even know what a derivative is. I don't know why you're saying that. You know what I mean? But yeah. I feel the need to develop this very developed idea. And the reality to me is it all depends on who you work for and not just your employer, but exactly who your boss is, right? They say people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. So mm -hmm. it's really important that you take the opportunities to work with people who value you, who treat you well. And that can sometimes be challenging in the legal profession. So be open, look for people who are good. Um, that's number one. Number two, be present when you work, be present when you come to meetings. People find themselves on their phones all the time now. You yeah. cannot sit in business meetings on your phone. You should not be sitting in classrooms on your phone or on your laptop. Pay yeah. attention, take notes. Um, be present for whatever it is that you're doing because that will make you stand out and that will make people take notice of you. Even be present when you're having conversations with people. Um, it's really, really important. But I think that is, you know, there's a great book called The Power of Now, which talks about, you know, being in the present moment. Um, and that I think is something that everyone should really work on. So I think uh, mindfulness is the third part, which is we talked about well-being and part yeah. of well-being is mindfulness, which is being in tune with yourself being in tune with others. And again, you know, The Power of Now is a great book to read. And there's another great book um, called The Four Agreements um, by Don Miguel Ruiz, which is Toltec philosophy, which is four rules for living. And again, I think doing a little bit of that work to develop yourself, work on yourself, be in touch with yourself, um, as well as how you interact with the world and with others um, is really, really important. Wow. Do you know, even I was writing those down, you know, because after, what, 22 years this year at the bar, we all need reminders, don't we, of, of these tips, careers advice, often at different levels even, don't we? You know, the advice can often be, be the same. Daniel, 
I'm wondering, what's next for you? Are you still a member of the American Bar Association? Yep, I'm a member of the American Bar Association. Yeah. Interlaw is getting from better to better. You've got these amazing awards and you're doing amazing stuff for Jeffries. Uh, you know, I was reading all the recent stuff you've been doing and uh, and you've been you know, speaking on a lot of panels and so on and so forth. So I'm just wondering... What, what's next? Might a book be or might you be thinking managing partner, maybe setting up on your own? Have you got any plans? Are you kind of just happy doing what you're doing? I, honestly, I am in my dream jobs. I love my work at Jeffries. I feel really honored to work there. It's a great group of people. It's a great growing entrepreneurial business. It's very, very exciting to be part of it and be supporting the work that they're doing. So I love that. I am really honored to be an adjunct professor at, at Holt Business School. I've always wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so teaching is, is something I really enjoy um, and I love doing in a more formal way. And just continuing with interlaw and continuing to really try and support individuals while we also support organizations and then work with the regulators, work with the um, SRA to try and really bring about change in the legal sector and doing projects like the Model Diversity Survey, and continuing our research. So we also published a new research report at the end of last year based on data on the on career progression. So it's cross-strand, yeah. all strands of DNI and social mobility. So the Career Progression Report 2021 came out last year, and soon we'll be collecting data to do an update of that to look at the impact of COVID on the profession and see where we are. Wow. That's a big job and a half, isn't it? So it's re- it's I really look forward to um certainly the impact on COVID as well. Um, Daniel, just before you go, this has been brilliant. You know, I could talk to you forever. I haven't even asked you about Madonna. We're going to run out of time. I was thinking, could, could Madonna play Daniel in a in a you know in a Hollywood film or maybe a Broadway production? I don't know because she's getting on a bit now, isn't she, Daniel? Um, uh, but my, the question I wanted to ask you about is this as well. You're very good at using you know social media which we all call a necessary evil don't we um and i just wondered you know how you came to embrace that because you know sometimes young people put all sorts of things on there you know vomiting inappropriate dressing things that might look fun but of course it leaves a footprint and so i wondered you know whether you had any advice and how you came to kind of embrace social media in a, in a positive way. I don't mean in LinkedIn, you know, where I'm just posting pictures of my dog and articles about the law, but I mean generally. Do you have any kind of um, tips for young people, especially, posting on there? And how did you learn to embrace some of the positives, you know? Well, I think it's interesting. I think we're very lucky because we didn't grow up with it, right? Yeah, yeah. We learned to use it in a conscious way. I think what young people need to do is step outside of it and realize, you know, you're publishing when you put these things up on social media. So everyone can see what you're doing. Everyone can see what you're doing. It's, it's almost like you're, you know, it's like an email that goes out to the whole world. So you really should think of it as running a mini blog, really be much more careful about what you post, what you say and how you say it, because it is a reflection of you. So I do think that you have to think before you publish everything, do I want everyone to see this? Is this something I, w- I think is appropriate? Is this something I think would be fine? And I also think over time, you should be reviewing what you have up there and you know, taking it down or, or deleting things. Um, I mean, I think Twitter is a very dangerous space that people should not necessarily 
there's a lot of negativity on Twitter. It's a lot of fighting. It's a lot of negativity. I'm not sure what positive things come out of Twitter. I think there can be some connections between people, but I think there's far more negative than positive. It's a space I don't really go into a lot. I dive in and tweet and then I run away. I use LinkedIn quite a bit. I think yeah. people should use LinkedIn. I mean, what LinkedIn is, is, is a electronic CV. So keep it up to date. Make sure you put details about what you do. People will use that and look at you. Um, and then, you know, when you post on LinkedIn, be thoughtful. And then I think in your private life, you can use social media, but just be conscious and aware. Things like Instagram are completely public unless you lock it. Um, mm. But even then, you know, people have access to it. And things like Facebook as well are, you know, often there's default settings now that make things you put up there public unless you change that. So just be mindful about what you put up and, and be always, I would err on the side of caution because I think we're in a serious profession and you see some of these kids coming up who call themselves influencers and they're just posting silly videos to YouTube, which, you know, I wouldn't want those people representing me. Um, it, it really isn't. I think a lot of some of the stuff that people are doing is not great for their brand uh, long term. Um, so I think people should be thinking about what they can do that enhances their career rather than detracts from it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great, great advice. And so come on, Madonna, what's your favorite song? Um, maybe I'll give you a top three. Because you, you've seen Madonna lots of times, haven't you? I've seen Madonna a lot of times, yes. <laughs> I've never seen her. That's why I'm so jealous. I've probably seen her like a hundred times. So um, <laughs> I think, well, again, it's like picking my favorite book, but off the top of my head, um, I would say Like a Prayer. Yeah. Vogue. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And... Mm. You're getting stuck now. There's a song called Cherish, which is I a love really... Cherish. That's an yeah. amazing song, an amazing video. Yes. Uh, and Express Yourself. I, I just, I can keep going. And I love <laughs> any, and some of her newer, her newer stuff I, re I really like as well. So she's had some good, good stuff that isn't as well known, but... There's a lot. There's a lot of great tracks. She's a great performer and great music. I'm not a fan of her social media. She should take social media advice from me. Um, <laughs> no, but, yeah. I think, but I think you know. Look, I, I think she's young still. She's 63. But you know, I think the overuse of filters. How can you say that you're embracing your sexuality and embracing being a 63 year old when you filter your pictures so you look like you're 20? <laughs> that I think is is contradictory. So I'm all for her being you know, embracing herself and be, you know, being uh, empowered and, and open about her sexuality. But I think that she should be um, more natural yes. and embrace being who she is today, which I think is amazing. Wow. Gosh, you know, I'm, I don't even follow her. I don't even know how to use a filter, never mind anything else. So we're all going to be desperately trying to look now. Daniel, it's been absolutely wonderful spending this time with you, talking law and, um, taking all the advice and hearing about the fantastic thing you've been doing in leading in the law. Thank you so much for coming on Talking Law. Thank you so much, Sally, for having me. It's been great chatting. Big thank you to Daniel Winterfell for Talking Law with me, Sally Penny, MBE. Thanks again to Interlaw Forum for supporting this episode. To find out more, visit interlawdiversityforum.org. If you would like to support the Talking Law podcast, please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at SallyPenny1 or search for me on LinkedIn or Instagram. I also have two new books available to assist your careers. I hope you find them useful. They're called Talking Law and Skills 
and Talking Law and Careers, both of which are available on Amazon. Do make sure you catch up with previous episodes of Talking Law, where you can hear my interviews with guests such as the former president of the Law Society of England and Wales, I, Stephanie Boyce, and QC, Julian Morn from The Good Law Project. Thank you to our production team, Sam Walker and Michael Blades at What Goes On Media. I'm Sally Penny, MBE. Bye for now. Bye for now.